Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Alexis Goldsmith um, from Beyond Plastic talking about next week's legislative hearings on Nevada Bill and Packaging Reduction. Then our Peace Bucket covers the Palestinian Rights Rally in Albany. It took place on Monday. Later on, we hear about the Project Access's work at University of Albany to deal with uh, stress among students. Uh, then Willie Terry reports on the Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative Labor Project at Skidmore. And we finish with Ellie Iron speaking with Indigenous homesteader Lucille Greeno, who is coming to College City Growers Garden at the Sanctuary this Friday, October 20th. But first, headlines. The Gilderland School Board has voted to allow girls to wear athletic bras as shirts during practice. They also voted to allow athletes, particularly boys, to practice without shirts, subject to a coach's approval. Schenectady City Council members could see their annual pay increase by 16% to $16,356 annually under a proposal from City Council President Marianne Porterfield. A jury needed just three hours Tuesday to clear Saratoga Springs police of all civil claims of wrongdoing in the death of biracial Daryl Mount Jr., ending a 10-year legal battle that highlighted the fraught relationship between city police and the black community. The trial documented that the police department had lied to local media when it claimed it was investigating the death following a police chase. Last Friday, 40-year-old Woody Smith suffered a fatal heart attack after he was tased by police in Lansenburg. The black man was suspected of trespassing after exiting a house through a window. Police did provide emergency medical aid. Channel 13 reports that the State Welfare Department has refuted claims that migrants were being mistreated by DocGo at motels in Albany. The state inspectors found residents had access to food, transportation, case management, and medical services, and that children were being enrolled in schools. The Times Union reports that multiple Capital Region school districts received bond threats Wednesday, leading to lockouts and shelters in place. Bethlehem schools said the FBI Albany Field Office is investigating bond threats sent to schools across the state as swatting or a false threat meant to draw a police response. And in an inside state capital news, Tracy Edwards, Long Island Regional Director of the NAACP, has resigned from the State Public Service Commission and will begin working as a vice president at the Las Vegas Sands Corporation. The Public Service Commission last week voted to deny increased subsidies to existing renewable energy projects such as offshore wind companies planning to use the Port of Albany's and Queemans. Edwards was appointed to the seven-member commission in 2019 by former Governor Andrew Cuomo, but her term was set to expire in February 2024. That's it for headlines. 
For our first segment, Hudson Mohawk Magazine contributor Alexis Goldsmith speaks with Mark Dunley in her role as the organizing director of Beyond Plastics. Critical public hearings on the Bottle Bill and Packaging Reduction Act are taking place at the Capitol early next week. We're joined by Alexis Goldsmith, a frequent guest here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Uh, She is the organizing director for uh, Beyond Plastics. And there's a couple important uh, hearings coming up, um, Monday, October 23rd and Tuesday, October 24th, uh, on the bottle bill and on uh, package and reduction. So why don't we start with the first hearing, uh, Alexis, uh, the bottle bill. and you know, unfortunately, the lead organizer um, for the Bottle Bill for Nyberg, uh, Ryan Carson, was unfortunately recently killed, which is very sad for for all of us. He was a great guy. Um, but but what's this hearing about, and uh, how can people participate? Thanks, Mark. So this is a public hearing uh, that is by invitation only, which sounds counterintuitive, but this is an opportunity for the sponsors and the Senate and Assembly leadership to hear technical input on the bills. So even though it's by invitation only, the public can still submit comments um, to the Senate and the Assembly because it's a joint hearing. Um, And it's really exciting that these bills have a public hearing in the first place because they are two of the major environmental bills in the legislature this session. So um, what is the holdup in trying to expand the bottle bill? It always seems such a common sense thing to do since it's been the most effective recycling program uh, in New York State. What, what would the hearing, you know, what, what does the proposed expansion do? And, and where is the hearing actually taking place for the bottle bill? I know the packaging bill hearing is going to be in conference room C. So the point of the hearing is, to, as I said, to get technical comments, and this is a, the first opportunity, well, it's not the first opportunity, but this is an opportunity to bring this 40-year-old environmental law into the modern day um, to look at things that weren't considered in the 80s when it was first passed. And something that I will be advocating for in my testimony is including reuse targets that are mandated in the law. So no other bottle bill in the country does this, um, but it's very important to reducing waste because the beverage manufacturers are the largest producers of plastic pollution in the world globally. Um, So that is something we'll be bringing up. We'll also be bringing up um, enforcement of return to retail, which means basically accessibility of being able to return your deposit containers to a supermarket or to a retailer where those deposit containers were sold. We're going to be talking about the need to increase the deposit to 10 cents. That will increase the return rate, but it will also give a much needed raise to about 10,000 people Uh, mostly in New York City, who get their income from collecting and redeeming deposit containers. And these are people who have um, barriers to employment, whether their English isn't their first language or whatever reason that they can't find traditional employment. 
Now, does, uh, it, was it, does the proposal expand the number of items covered by the bottle bill? And usually the argument I hear from legislators is, is especially in upstate New York, um, there's a lot, and even downstate, there's a lack of space for the, you know, small mom and pop stores to take this stuff in. So how, you know, is there an expansion and how do you respond to the impact upon the small stores? Right. So the bill would increase the types of containers that have a deposit. So most non-carbonated beverages, including like sports drinks, teas, wine, liquor, nips bottles. Um, and the way the law is written is if you sell it, you have to take it back. So that's where the concern for the small stores is coming. If they have to take back a lot of bottles or as many as they sell, they're concerned about the space, um, especially in Manhattan. Um, so that's a valid concern, and there are a number of ways to address this. One is to carve out an exception for small retailers, like 2,000 square feet or less, for example, um, access to reverse vending machines that can be set outside of the establishment. Um, there's a program where uh, basically retailers can lease to own these reverse vending machines, and they can get 50% of that um, the cost like uh, through grant, there's a grant program through the DEC where they can get the funds. Now the DEC hasn't actually released any of those funds, but the funding is there and that comes from the un unredeemed deposits and that's to increase the access to redemption. But the way I look at it is if you're returning your deposit containers, you're going to put them in one bin and take them to a reverse vending machine or a redemption center that accepts all of those containers. You're not going to go out of your way to take, you know, one vodka bottle back or one wine bottle back to a particular retailer. Um, it That logically doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, package and reduction bill. Now, this is something a lot of attention the last couple of years that the governor actually has put in her proposals the last couple of years. A lot of the dispute seems to be what type of goals should be uh, set as to the amount of packaging that's going to be uh, reduced. So, you, you know, what, what are the flashpoints in this effort at this point? Well, the bill is... It's a massive environmental bill. This is, in my opinion, the biggest environmental bill since the climate law was passed in 2019. Um, so this bill reduces plastic packaging by 50%. This is the first bill in the world that would do such a such a, over what time period? Over what over 12 years. So it's not only ambitious, but it's a pretty. I mean, they have enough time to reduce their packaging, and a lot of it can be eliminated. But that really only gets us back to the amount of plastic we were producing in 2000. So it may seem ambitious, but this is really just one step towards solving the plastic pollution crisis. And the flashpoint is that the major consumer brands don't want to have to comply with packaging reduction. And by consumer brands, you mean in big corporations? Yeah, I mean Amazon, which made 400, uh, $514 billion in sales in 2022. Mars Company, one of the biggest plastic polluters in the world, made $54 billion in 2022. Procter & Gamble made $80 billion in 2022. Johnson & Johnson, $95 billion. And the list goes on. So these are the brands that are selling you know, grocery store foods, hygiene products, your toothpaste, your cleaning products, and it's all coming 
in single-use plastic packaging. And that is turning our oceans into landfills, but also coming back to us in our food and water because plastic pollution in the environment is breaking down into microplastics. So we want to move those materials away from single-use plastic toward uh, reusable packaging, packaging that is actually designed to be recyclable. So paperboard, for example, and um, just eliminate packaging altogether where you don't need it. Okay, so we have about a minute and a half left. So sort of a two-part question. You know, we had new legislative leaders on the environmental committees last year, Senator Harkin, Deborah Glick. They seem to be aligned on this. It's a matter now really trying to get the uh, the governor and, of course, the, the lobbyists. So, you know, what are the prospects for this year? Where is the governor? And for this hearing that's taking place on uh, Tuesday, the uh, 24th at 9.30 a.m., are people allowed to speak at that one? Both of the hearings are by invitation only. The, the public will be able to submit comments and they are posted on the Senate website. You'll also be able to watch the hearings through the Senate website. I'll be testifying on Monday for the bottle bill. Um, we know the governor's position on packaging reduction. She proposed one in the budget last year. It only required a 15% reduction. So obviously we want a lot more than that. But the good news is that the Senate and the Assembly sponsors are the Environmental Com Conservation Committee chairs, and they're in agreement on a strong bill. We have a majority of senators co-sponsoring the packaging reduction bill. We're only five assembly members away from a majority of assembly members co-sponsoring the packaging reduction bill. So we're confident we have the votes to get this passed and get this done in 2024. Been talking with Alexa Goldsmith, the organizing director of Beyond Plastics. Uh, your uh, webpage for more information? Beyondplastics.org. Thank you very much. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Uh, and we do expect to have uh, Alexis on uh, probably uh, next week following the hearings uh, to give us a report on uh, what were the key issues that were raised during those hearings. War is raging today in the occupied Gaza territories. As the carnage continues to escalate, including more than 500 killed in a bombing of a hospital on Tuesday, both President and Biden both President Biden and Governor Hochul have traveled to express their unwavering support of Israel. On Monday, more than 100 peace, faith, and community leaders rallied out of the federal building in Albany to call for peace and immediate ceasefire. Mark filed this report. On Monday, October 16th, as Israel prepared to invade Gaza, more than 100 peace activists gathered at the federal O'Brien building in downtown Albany to call for an immediate ceasefire and release of all hostages. The event was sponsored by the Palestinian Rights Committee, Jewish Voices for Peace, and Saratoga Peace Alliance. Most of the speakers condemned the recent violence by Hamas, as well as the ongoing violence that Israel has inflicted on Palestinians for decades, turning the occupied territories into an open-air prison camps. Speakers blamed the Biden administration and other elected officials for their carte blanche support for Israel rather than seeking peace and justice for all the residents of the Middle East. As Tom Ellis of the Palestinians' Rights Committee observed, if there is one thing we have learned since October 7th, it is that Hamas and the Israeli government are spectacularly talented in bringing out the worst in each other. Karen Kameli of Jewish Voices for Peace a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, 
recounted how she had fled Israel at the age of 16 to avoid the mandatory military service that all young people are required to engage in, which often is centered on the oppression of Palestinian civilians. We hear from Reverend John Palberg of the New York State Councils of Churches, Rabbi David Freeman of Jews United Against Zionism, Karen Carmelli, Tom Ellis, and former Daily Gazette journalist Carl Strzok. John Parlberg, um, I've been concerned about uh, issues in Palestine and Israel for several years now. I serve on the executive committee of the New York State Council of Churches and a regional coordinator for Churches for Middle East Peace. What do you think should be happening at this point as uh, Israel, you know, is uh, kind of leveling Gaza at the moment? Yeah, well, speaking for many of the churches who have issued statements, we are decrying the violence that uh, Hamas has inflicted on the people of Israel, calling for release of hostages, and calling on Israel to um, restrain from violence and to provide humanitarian relief to those who are in Gaza. Um, we've also been saying for many, many years that the underlying issue of uh, Israeli occupation and oppression of Palestinians uh, needs to stop um, because that only leads to the kind of violence that we're seeing today. And what would you say to you know our Congress people and uh, President Biden? What should the American government be doing at this point? Um, we would say we would urge them to refrain from providing additional military aid to Israel and instead to prioritize diplomatic efforts at uh, working toward a ceasefire and uh, opening humanitarian corridors for the people in Gaza. In reality, how does one come to peace at this point, given the 75-year occupation and the loss of so much land and water? I don't think we're going to get to peace very easily or very soon. Um, but that does not mean that we should stop advocating for peace and advocating for justice. Um, many people said the same thing about the situation under the apartheid government in South Africa, and things did change. Um, it's going to be a long, long struggle, um, but we need to keep advocating for peace. Uh, my name is Rabbi David Feldman. I'm with Nature Carta International, Jews United Against Zionism. I happen to be from Rockland County, the rest of my group from Orange County, not so far away from here. We are Jewish communities. We are so upset to all what's going on in Palestine already for decades. Uh, all what we are, are experiencing the last couple of days uh, is just a continuation. Nothing started now, nothing started a week ago. All of this started over 75 years ago when this brutal occupation of Palestine uh, first started oppressing an entire people happens to be in total uh, contrast the basics of, Jew, of, Jude, of Judaism. This is forbidden. This occupation is forbidden from beginning to end. And sadly, we have a state of Israel insisting that they represent all Jews and they act in the name of all Jews and they act, uh, unfortunately, in the name of the Jewish religion. This is not the Jewish religion. This is not the opinion of the, of the masses of Jewish people. We have masses of Jewish people in the, in the United States, in Palestine and the world over who oppose this occupation in its entirety. If we are truly looking for a solution. If we want to see a long-lasting solution, we have to search and understand what is the root cause behind all of this. Otherwise, we would never uh, reach the right solution. The root cause here is not the difference of religion. We had differences of religions for a very long time before. 
all this uh, 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 terrible situation started decades ago. It is the occupation which is destroying the Palestinian people and endangering the Jewish people as well. We don't need the state of Israel to protect us. We were protected by Muslims for a very long time. We don't want to have a state of Israel to endanger the Jewish people the world over. Thank you very much. My name is Karen Carmelli. I'm out here today representing Albany's chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, I'm an Israeli-American citizen. I lived in Israel for 16 years, and I left before being drafted into the Israeli military. I'm also the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and what I'm seeing in Palestine right now is an absolute genocide, and I feel like it's my responsibility to be here and speak out against it. My grandfather, who survived the Holocaust by the skin of his teeth at the age of 11, his entire family was murdered by Nazis, always instilled in me the value of never again. Never again is now. It is our duty to speak out, and that's why I'm here today. And, and how does one um, you know, respond to Israelis' uh, concern about they want to be feel protected? Everyone wants to feel protected, and everyone deserves the right to be protected. What Hamas did, I mean, the murder of Israeli civilians, including children, was abhorrent. And what we are calling for today is a ceasefire to make sure that more children and more innocent civilians aren't killed in this bloody conflict that has roots in a 75-year-old occupation. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, my name is Tom Ellis. I live in Albany and I work with the Palestinian Rights Committee. And we're here today for a number of reasons. One is we're calling upon the United States government to demand that the Israeli government open the pipes again and allow water into Gaza. They haven't allowed water into Gaza in more than a week, and people are probably already dying of thirst by now, and they certainly will be very soon, that most of the water in Gaza is polluted. Um, we're also calling for a, a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, and we're calling for a release of the political prisoners and the captives on both sides and we're calling for allowing the humanitarian aid to come in, and we're calling for, God, what are we calling? <laughs> Sorry. We're calling for an end to the siege, if I didn't already say that, and, and opening up Gaza to the outside world again. How, how has our local Congress people been responding to this situation, and are they trying to push the Biden administration for more even-handed policy? I, I, I know that Schumer and Gillibrand are not. Um, Tonko, I'm not sure. I know that Schumer was quoted a few days ago of accusing Hamas of unprecedented viciousness, and which I think is like rather hypocritical on his part, considering that Hamas may be as vicious as Israel, but Israel does it on a vastly greater scale, and they've done it for 75 years. If people are interested in finding out more, particularly about the local chapter of the Palestinian Rights Committee, how best can they do that? They could contact me at T-O-M-E-L-L-I-S-107 at gmail.com. We, we're going to have our website up and running within a couple of weeks. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, Carl Strock with the Palestinian Rights Committee. Um, one of the things I'm distressed about here is that this is going to make, and by this I mean the current disaster in Gaza, uh, Palestine, is going to make media coverage even more slanted than it was. Uh, before there was very little justification for seeing um, for seeing Israel as the good guys and the Palestinians as the bad guys, but this the massacre that occurred, the invasion on uh, on October seventh, I'm afraid makes the media's job easier in a way. 
it's easier for them to push the line that the Palestinians are the victims, and um, and that the um, excuse me that the um, that the Israelis are the victims and the Palestinians are the aggressors. I'm sorry to see that. And I understand you actually visited the occupied territories, and what was your impression on that visit? I did. I did. I visited. Um, I visited the uh, the West Bank and uh, East Jerusalem. It's been quite a while now. It's been, I think, uh, 11 years. <laughs> And that uh, turned my mind on this. I had not previously been all that concerned with Israel and Palestine, and that opened my eyes. It was a shock to me, frankly. It was really a shock to see how the Palestinians were treated, how they had lost their land, how they'd been dispossessed. I met ordinary Palestinian people. I had a Palestinian interpreter with me, and it um, kind of changed my life in a way. It really did. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And I should have mentioned that Nicole actually visited Palestine as a reporter or journalist uh, for the Daily Gazette. And because of his reporting, um, he lost his job uh, at the Gazette. Uh, I also point out as one of the original members of Sanctuary Radio, HMN, uh, I remember our discussions early on about our commitments as journalists to cover nonviolent approaches to conflict resolution. As always, we will seek to provide fair and equal coverage to the divergent voices on this conflict, but we will also work to ensure that the voices for peace and justice are uplifted. For those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. I'm Sina Basilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, uh, relative, co-worker. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Dolores Cimini, Director of Projects at Access, speaks with Victor Max Valentine about her student advocacy group at the University at Albany, which helps students navigate the stressors of campus life. This is David Allen Morse with the Sanctuary for Independent Media, and I am speaking with Dolores Cimini, Director of the Center for Behavioral Health Promotion and Applied Research, and the Director of Project Access, a student advocacy program at the University of Albany. Hello and welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and speak with you. Uh, I'm very excited because I know as a student, uh, organizations such as yours give me a lot of comfort just knowing they're there. Uh, can you give us a brief summary, please, of the services you provide students through Project Access? Certainly. Project Access stands for Achieving College Completion Through Engaged Support Services. It is a program that provides timely and responsive um, conversations, brief conversations and referrals um, to students here at the University at Albany. Um, what we do is we have trained prevention navigators who are themselves students at UAlbany with lived experience. And we've trained them, as I mentioned, to engage in brief conversations around 
um, student health and well-being. So we we talk about um, the whole gamut of experiences that students may have. Um, so financial well-being, uh, psychological well-being, social well-being, um, of course, economic well-being, housing, mental health, substance use, a whole variety of different areas. And we, we do check-ins with students and ask them various questions um, about their well-being. And if we find uh, any areas where students could benefit from referrals to different places on campus in the community, we refer them out. Um, the project is funded by some generous grants from the federal government, uh, particularly the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration uh, at the um, Department of Health and Human Services for the United States. That's lovely. Um, what are the three most common issues with which students come to your organization that you know of? Um, I would say, you know, it's hard to... Um, it's hard to really say that there are only three. It's a whole variety of different issues uh, depending on what the student's needs are. So anything from mental health concerns such as anxiety and depression um, to substance use, so um, excessive use of alcohol, cannabis use. Um, we're also now seeing students coming in with concerns around gambling with the recent legalization of gambling in New York State. Um, we also have um, um, experienced uh, our students coming in with housing insecurity and financial insecurity and um, you know, other other issues that can actually be addressed by um, some other offices that we have on campus outside of our counseling center. Um, so, you know, those issues as well. And of course, those can result in mental health issues such as depression or anxiety, but can be addressed um, through helping students provide, uh, get housing and, and um, address their finances and those types of things. So we refer students um, to access those services when we know that those are the needs the students have. Uh, do you feel that some students are reticent to ask for help due to the stigma connected with experiencing difficulties uh, with university life, for instance? Yes. Um, many students feel that, you know, most students are doing better than they are and they they feel alone. Um, they feel um, lonely in terms of social uh, types of connections. They feel like they're the only one experiencing the stress that they are and therefore um, shouldn't really share their concerns with anyone. But in fact, um, what we, what we say uh, to our students is that um, issues and adjustment, adjusting to college are very common. Mental health issues are common. Issues with substance use are common. Um, no issue is too small. And so what we do in Project Access is we have students um, who are trained, as I mentioned, and we place them in settings um, where students naturally congregate. For example, advising settings, right? So um, we have navigators in advising settings. So when students come in for 
services around advising, which every student eventually has to do as part of being in college because you have to put your schedule together. Um, we have navigators available so that it's kind of a one-stop um, shop. And so, you know, um, students can access navigation services at the same time and get well-being check-ins. And that's the beauty of our program. Um, we we provide um, access to well-being check-ins in ways that um, you know in ways that are very easy for students and can reach those students who are the least likely to go directly to counseling services and health services. And what we do is we don't replace those services, but in fact we um, help help to um, to you know to encourage the referrals to those places who themselves then can provide the services and have for many years that's wonderful um by the way i understand in 2001 you and daniel trujillo i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly. yes yes won, daniel we used to work together you won a national award for the middle earth peer assistance program yes which is amazing mm -hmm. yes um, do you feel that there has been progress in the country with more awareness of the need for increasing students' well-being? Yes, um, there there has been progress. There still there still is um, a way to go. There always is. Otherwise, we don't have a, a goal to achieve, right? So yeah. we you know we always want to make continued progress. But um, we've made a lot of progress in. Um, addressing um, issues such as stigma around mental health in particular, and also substance use. So you see on more and more college camp campuses, for example, the rise of collegiate recovery programs that provide support um, in terms of recovery for substance use and mental health concerns. Um, you also see more attention to health and well-being through um, something called the Healthy Campus um, health promoting campus. It's actually called health promoting campus. It's a, that's an international movement, and the U.S. now it is um, promoting that. The University at Albany uh, is, I'm pleased to say, a health promoting university. We became such on August 31st of 2021, which is uh, very exciting. And so we are aiming to support well-being for everybody on our campus in terms of person place and planet so not only do we look at the traditional services that we have for mental health and substance use and its prevention and, and intervention but we also look at areas such as sustainability um, and um, you know making the campus a place that can support well-being by um, the way that it looks and what it does and you know, how it sustains um, life in terms of the planet, that type of thing. Oh, uh, that's remarkable. I am so grateful that you and your organization and the students who work with you are are there, um, not just because I go to you to you, Albany, but it's nice to hear that across the United States that these programs are being uh, being instituted. That's that's wonderful. Thank you. Anyone is interested in Project Access in terms of um, seeking any any uh, services from our navigators, 
We are located in um, the Catskill building on campus, room 117. You know, you can reach us through me. Um, my email address is dcimini at albany.edu. And I will be able to connect you uh, to our navigators and our program in the event that you might want to do an internship um, or, again, uh, seek navigation services. We're happy to uh, help and support students in any way we can. And so that was um, David Allen Moores uh, talking with uh, Dolores Semini, uh, Director of Project Access, about what type of um, support they give to students at the University of Albany to reduce the stress of campus life. I'll just quickly mention I had a job, first job out of a law school uh, in Albany, uh, off-campus association, but our, our job was more trying to help students with landlord-tenant problems and unfortunately with the uh, whole problem of sexual assault in the early 80s in the uh, Pine Hills um, neighborhood. And next we head to part two of Roaming Labor Correspondent Willie Terry's interview with Eric Morser at, of Skidmore College. They've been working together as part of the MDocs program, the Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative on labor documentation. Now, is this the only project that you, you're working on like this, or have you did a project like this in the past? I did something a little bit similar to this. About seven or eight years ago, I taught a public history course on Mount McGregor, which was a prison north of Saratoga that closed about a dozen years ago. And as part of this, what I did is I had students try and reconstruct the world of the prison. And in the public history class, we would have a semester long project mm -hmm. devoted to kind of a local story where students would go off and um, work with community stakeholders and really kind of reconstruct this story and get practical experience doing it. And we were fortunate enough to be part of a national exhibit devoted to mass incarceration where member schools told and shared individual stories. So I had my students reconstruct the world of, of, of Mount McGregor. And as part of this, they interviewed people who had a connection to the prison. So it was people who worked in the prison, but it was also a lot of uh, formerly incarcerated people as well. So at the end of that project, my students did interviews. They had selected some quotations. And then the audio of these interviews became part of this traveling exhibit that is still traveling around the country today. Mm. So that is really what got me interested in the power of this kind of oral history. Uh, and that was a that was a great introduction to me and to the students about the kinds of great things that we can do with this type of work. Mm. What's the uh, target audience that you have for the project? I mean, are you looking to target particular audience in terms of these interviews? I'm really, you know, I want this to be open to anybody who cares okay. about labor issues in Saratoga, anybody who cares about labor history. So, you know, scholars would be interested in this, but I think it's something that that just people in the community would be interested in as well. Um, I think that just working with labor organizers and working people in town to help them share their stories is something that's really of interest to a lot of different people. So it's it goes beyond this kind of academic world. I really want it to be a resource that anybody who cares about these kinds of topics can go to mm -hmm. and really learn something new and maybe 
start to ask questions that they want to pursue or may want they may want to share their own stories with me as well and we can add them mm-hmm. now is there a let's say a timeline for completion of this project or will this project be an ongoing process this is ongoing for as long as I offer the course. Um, I taught it for the first time in the fall of 2022. I'm teaching it again in the spring. And I really envision this as a project that's going to last five or 10 years, where we build up uh, a really robust lineup of interviews, where what I'm going to have students doing eventually is writing short stories connected to local labor history. It, It really is a place where people can go to learn more about local unions and labor organizations. This is a kind of project I think that's going to just continue on, and I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know I asked you about the resources, you know, what the school support you're getting from the school, but I do want to ask you, uh, how will this project kind of be aligned with, let's say, I know Skidmore have uh, their own goals and objectives. Uh, how will it be aligned with, with the college? I think it fits really well with the college in, in a couple different ways. Um, one of the thing that I've done, or a couple things I've done, as long as well as being a history professor, is that I'm the faculty director of civic engagement. Um, and in that job, I work with staff and students and faculty members to figure out ways to really have connections between the college and the community. And I think this is a really neat example of the kind of work that Skidmore can do beyond the ivory towers. Um, In another way, it also fits with a new requirement at Skidmore. It's called the bridge experience. And we really felt as a faculty that we had to have our students thinking and talking more about issues of power and justice and identity in contemporary America. And that was a real motivation for the class that I wanted students to wrestle with these kinds of issues as they were writing papers, as they were reading, as they were taking exams, but as they were viewing the world, uh, the larger world. So in those ways, I think it's, it's, it, it fits really well with the, the larger community engagement model we have and also with this idea of getting students to think about and wrestle with these tougher issues in contemporary America. Now, uh, again, getting back to the resources and the support, what were some of the resources that you needed for this project or continue to need for this project? And do you have any concerns about it? Um, my, the, I think one of the biggest resources that was critical was the co-creation initiative and honestly working with you and Hudson Mohawk magazine because you helped establish my connections with labor organizers all across the region and that is just hugely significant I'm kind of at a point now where I have some of these connections but maintaining them is something that I think is really really critically important Mm -hmm. and I think one of the challenges is always making it very clear that this is not just a project for Skidmore it's a project for everybody who's involved in it so I'm always looking to get people interested I'm more than happy to to have people who want to share their stories uh, do that. And I think that's kind of just maintaining these connections is one of the biggest challenges. And um, it really does take a village to make this kind of project work. And, and maintaining that village is just critically important. Right. Okay. And uh, you also said that you uh, will, this will be a resource. Uh, you know, you kind of want to document these projects. Uh, I just want to know how 
would let's say uh, someone get access to this information? Yeah, they can. You, you can go and check the website out. It's part of the Saratoga, uh, the Skidmore Saratoga Memory Project. Mm-hmm. We've got a link to the archive. Um, right now, anybody can can go on and look at it. It's open to the public. There are oral interviews already up. Um, there's six separate oral interviews with seven different people and you can just go on and click on it and you can listen to the oral interview. There are transcriptions that people can open up and download if they want to. So it's just a few clicks away, um, for people who are interested in, in really checking out the kind of work that, that my students have been doing. Right. Yeah. I think it's very good, you know, for future generations to get to know that information about what was the labor history in the area. What are your final expectations for this project? What I really hope is that it's going to become a place that people think of when they think of Saratoga labor history. That it's, what I want it to be is, is kind of a clearinghouse where people who might have questions about labor history stories in town think of to go to. Um, I'm hoping that people look at some of the interviews, listen to some of them, maybe reach out to some of the folks who are involved. I'm hoping that they come to me with any questions or suggestions or if they want to participate. Um, so ultimately, that would become my dream for this project, that it's something that lives on, that it's something that's there 20 or 30 years from now. When I'm no longer at Skidmore, that people can go back to and say, this is a great resource and maybe it can be a model for what we want to do or so we can build on the kind of work that we see here. All right. All right, Eric, just one more question, Eric. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to say about the project that I did not ask you? No, I think the one thing I would stress is that, again, if anybody is is interested in this, check the project out. And if, if, if folks have stories that they want to share, they should reach out to me at Skidmore. Uh, my email is there. They can find and track down my information at the History Department website. And uh, I'm happy to work with anybody who is really willing to share their stories. And I'm, I'm also happy to, to visit people and talk to organizations uh, if they have any questions about the work that we're doing. All right. All right, Eric. Uh, thank you uh, for that information. And that was Eric Moser, who's professor at Skidmore College in Saratoga Spring, New York, and also who's a creator of the uh, MDOT Labor Project. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Willie. It's great to be with you. And so that was part two of Willie Terry's coverage of the Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative Labor Project at Skidmore with Professor Eric Morset. And you can check out uh, mediacentury.org and search button top right uh, if you want to check out part one of the coverage. And for our last segment, Ellie Irons spoke with Indigenous homesteader Lucille Greeno, who is coming to Collard City Garden. Colored City Growers Garden on on this Friday, October 20th. We are very excited to welcome her for the event, Garden Walk, Seed Saving, and Seed Rematriation. Hello, listeners. This is Ellie, Nature Lab's community science educator. Today, I'm so pleased to be here with Lucille Berg-Renaud, who, with her family, owns and runs an indigenous homestead called Ancient Roots in Bowler, Wisconsin. 
Lucy will be joining us here in her Mohican homelands for a workshop this Friday, October 20th at Collard City Growers. Lucy, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I gave a brief introduction, but can you introduce yourself a little bit further? Yeah, thank you for having me. My name is Lucy Greeno. I am an enrolled member of the Stockbridge-Munsee Band of Mohican Nation. I'm also a direct descendant of the Menominee Nation, so I always love giving them a little shout out. Very proud to be who I am and embracing it in all forms. I am a very passionate Indigenous homesteader, educator and advocate for my community and the world around me. Um, as you said, my family owns an Indigenous homestead in Bowler, Wisconsin called Ancient Roots. At Ancient Roots, we research traditional gardening practices from all of our ancestors, all of our roots, no matter where they come from, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Um, dating back to ages ago to present day, we use a combination of all of their brilliant methods to learn, preserve, grow, seed save, reconnect, and share. So we're working on reconnecting to our cultural inheritance through land, plants, medicines, wildlife, and every everything. We have lots of passions and we love researching and investigating the world around us. It's just so fascinating. Um, I recognize my connections come from my Indigenous roots, coming from many forms, from my language journey, from listening to stories of my elders, our people, and all of that relating to how we can heal. And on our own healing journey, knowing that as we heal, the people around us heal as well. So I'm just so excited to be invited to my ancestral homeland to share our Ancient Roots Homestead journey, all about seed saving and really bringing those seeds back to their original homelands, which is really exciting. Wonderful. Yeah. And we'll dig into that a little bit further. We're also just delighted with this. As you may know, um, we've been working on a project that is called an, our eco art trail that's endeavoring to connect our current moment to all this amazing indigenous legacy and ongoing futurity so having you bringing back seeds is, is just a really amazing opportunity and i know in terms of connecting to mohican homelands you were recently a forge project fellow Congratulations. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Forge Project is a Native-led organization whose mandate is to cultivate and advance Indigenous leadership in arts and culture. They have this amazing campus about 45 minutes south of where we are in current day Troy. They're outside current day Hudson. Um, they have a really interesting event series ranging from amazing contemporary Indigenous art to I went to like a meadow restoration workshop there recently, which was really cool. Can you tell us a bit about your time at Forge? Um, what did you work on when you were there? Absolutely. My time at Forge has been so, so beautiful and full of so much love. I was there for three whole weeks in my ancestral homelands, which is a dream come true. I have been able to travel a few different times for small, quick trips, but being there for that extended amount of time really made my heart so joyful in all of the greatest ways. My current project that I'm working on is an Indigenous cookbook. So I am writing a book, which is really exciting, becoming an author. The book is actually highlighting 
stories of our elders and really connecting them to their childhood, like what types of smells remind them of their childhood, what ingredients, what gardening did they do? So it's really diving into our elders because they they share and carry so much knowledge and I really want to preserve it in a way that it is here for the future generations to come. That's amazing. I didn't know you were working on that project. That's so great. It relates Thank to some you. questions I had um later and so maybe we'll dive into what the workshop's going to be about and then from there we can jump a little bit more beyond that so the workshop we've got planned for friday came about through an invitation from azrae kiahi um shout out to azrae who's done some really wonderful land stewardship work here at colored city growers and other parts of the sanctuary campus over the last decade and Azrae and I have been experimenting and learning about seed keeping together. So I was um, so excited to see the topic of your workshop will be garden walk, seed saving, and seed rematriation. You alluded to this a little bit, but maybe you could tell us a bit more about what workshop participants will expect and then what seed rematriation means for someone who might not know. Yes. So our workshop is going to start with a garden walk which I hear the garden there is so beautiful, even in all of the seasons. I know it's getting colder and we're starting to shut things down for this season, but just really loving and acknowledging all of the different plant nation, like the plant relatives that are on this mother earth. It's just so beautiful in all of the seasons. So one of the things that I do is I bring photographs that I've taken of my own garden at Ancient Roots Homestead, and I'll place them throughout the garden at our garden walk. And why I do that is because it's so much fun to have people visit me at my own homestead, Ancient Roots, but that's how I kind of take it on the road with me to infuse it into all of the different gardens that I visit. So we're going to Say hello to all of the plant relatives in the garden there, take a walk, connect with Mother Earth, and just start out really gracefully and thankful. Then we're going to go into a seed-saving activity. Uh, my dad, my husband, and my daughter and I grew out Stackbridge Muncie bush beans. They're so beautiful, and right now we picked them all off of the plant for the fall harvest, but I kept them in their bean pods, and we're actually going to be able to touch them, connect with them, talk with them, show them our lovely, like, positive intentions of nourishing our bodies and sharing them, saving them for seed. So we'll actually be shucking Stackbridge Muncie beans together, which I'm really excited about. That sounds great. Then, yeah, then we're going to come inside and do a seed rematriation talk. So I'm going to share about our traditional seed relatives, introduce you all to some of them, and talk about how important it is to learn the stories of our seeds and our seed relatives and our ancestors and know that they were grown with so much love, so much intention and really dive into what that means during our seed rematriation talk. It's going to be such a lovely time. I'm so excited for it. And it's pretty, it's a, it's a new concept to some people. So to be able to share about how we have, as Mohican people, we were relocated from out east to current day Wisconsin and how we are finally returning back and 
being able to create connections and collaborations to be in our own ancestral homelands and to bring not only ourselves as human beings, but also our seed relatives, because they are living and breathing just like we are. And we give them lots of love and light and they grow for us abundantly. So I'm excited to share their stories with everybody. Oh, yeah, we're so honored that you're one of the places that will be supporting bringing these these seeds home. So it's really, really lovely. We've got about a minute left. Um, I know you've got kind of a packed schedule during this particular visit to your homelands. We've got our workshop this Friday, October 20th from 3.30 to 5.30 at Collard City Growers, which is 3337 6th Avenue in North Central Troy. Um, but you're doing another event as well. Do you want to describe that one? Yeah. So on Saturday from 11 to noon, I'll be in Stockbridge, Massachusetts at the Mission House, and I'll be sharing a talk about our traditional seed relatives as well. A lot of the same talking will be happening, but a lot of different activities come along with it. And then Saturday evening from four to six, I'll be in Hudson at the Hudson Area Library, sharing all about Willow for Willow Wellness. So we're going to be working with the tool shed and they are taking out all of the invasive Japanese knotweed and they're infusing the land with Willow. So we're talking about how Stockbridge Muncie Band of the Mohican Nation people would use Willow in different ways from crafting different art, using it for wellness, using it as medicine, all of the different ways. It's just so beautiful to hone in on all of these different plant relatives and really figure out like, what did my ancestors do with them? So in that, I've been able to travel to lots of different museums and archives and special collections around the United States and really research about these different plants and what my ancestors used them for. So I'm really like thankful and fortunate to be able to kind of uncover hidden gems and then bring these practices to life, but then share them out for everybody to know about. I'm I'm just ready to shout out from the rooftop. All of this knowledge is just so, so powerful. And I feel so fortunate that I'm able to work and live a life that infuses this in my everyday living. We are grateful that you get to do it as well and really looking forward to being part of it. Thank you so much, Lucy. We'll look forward to seeing you on Friday. Thank you so much. That was Ellie Irons with uh, Lucille Greenone. Uh, the event is part of a series uh, with our medicine garden and the nature lab. And you can stick around uh, after the event for Exploring Motherhood, Navigating the Journey of Disability at 7 p.m. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. I'm Mark Dunley. I want to thank uh, Joan Eason for being an engineer, as well as our other volunteers, uh, Willie Terry, uh, Victor Max uh, Val Valentine, Ellie Irons, and your co-host. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.